Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Acts. Um, we're, we're sort of at an interlude uh, between worship series. Um, we just finished up our summer, summer series, which was uh, Tunes for the Trail. We looked at the Songs of Ascent. And the next series that we're going to be studying this fall is a series on part of the Sermon on the Mount, found in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We're specifically going to look at the, what we call the Beatitudes. They're, it's kind of like Jesus' campaign speech, like his party platform. They're the paradoxical statements on how life is lived in, in the kingdom of God. And so that, that's going to start October 5th, and so that leaves us with the Sundays in September. Um, next week, we'll look at uh, stewardship of life, time, talent, treasures, and so forth. Uh, the following Sunday, which would be September 21st, is uh, MOPS Sunday. MOPS launches this week, like I mentioned, and we invite uh, all of the moms and their families and their kids to join us for a Sunday to help launch uh, the new MOPS year, and so that will be Sunday, September 21st, and in that Sunday morning, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, family and marriage issues, and then uh, the last Sunday of September, which will be the 28th, uh, we have the privilege of hearing from some Nazarene missionaries to Papua New Guinea. Uh, they work uh, in and around the Kujip Hospital, and there's some connection with our congregation in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Tim and Carla Duell will be sharing with us on September 28th. Well, that leaves us with today. What do we talk about in the meantime? And I thought because we are launching uh, core groups, and, and those will get going here in just a couple weeks, that um, I, I wanted to focus some attention on something that is central and foundational uh, to being a Christ follower, um, that we are called to be active participants in the body of Christ and in the Christian community. Um, see, see, our Christian faith, when we are one in the Spirit, um, we are called out of isolation and into relationship with one another. And one of the one of the core texts, if you will, talking about um, what it means to be a church, what it means to be the body of Christ, is found in Acts chapter 2. Now, to kind of get us to the point where we read today, uh, Jesus was crucified, dead, buried. God raised him to new life. And he appeared to many people, many of the disciples. Uh, he ate with them. Uh, and, and then he ascended into heaven. And his instructions were, wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples, they had been uh, gathered together uh, in a place. And in the, in the early part of uh, chapter 2 of Acts, we read about the Holy Spirit coming upon this gathered body of believers. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they, they started behaving in some strange ways to those who were looking in. I mean, they got a blessing. And the people, uh, 
looked in at, at this group of people who had spilled out into the streets now, and, and I imagine they were a little boisterous, that they were, uh, it was kind of maybe a party kind of an atmosphere, and the people looked at them and said, wow, they're drunk. And Peter said, no, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's too early to be drunk. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter took that opportunity to preach a sermon. And, and so we read about the sermon that Peter preached in the middle part of Acts chapter 2, where Peter addresses the crowd. And, and you know, in the middle of that, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You were witness to that. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. And then Peter goes on, so he's just documented the, the core of their belief, that Jesus was God's Messiah, that he had died and he was raised to new life, thereby being vindicated. And then, and then in the later part of his sermon, he kind of connects that to the prophecy way back from David's time that, that God would send somebody, that, that God would send a Messiah, a Savior. And then we get to our text for today. So I'd ask you to stand as we read. I want to read uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 47. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were, were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's a great story. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Quick show of hands. Yeah, good. We got hands in the air already. I know every, every hand should be in the air in a second here. How many of you have 
ever started an exercise program? Some of you put both hands in the air. <laughs> that would be me. All right, so hands still in the air. How, so you can put your hands down with this question, perhaps. How many of you have ever quit that exercise program? Whoa, some of you have never quit the program. I am, I am impressed with your prowess and diligence and persistence. <clears throat> um, core exercises seem to be the worst, right? Uh, I'm not talking, I'm not just talking about sit-ups and crunches to get that six-pack abs. Uh, your core isn't just your abs. Your core is, uh, is made up of all of the muscles in the center part of your body, all the way around and through. You could think of your core as um, like the central link in a chain uh, that connects your lower body and, and your upper body. Uh, whether you're uh, hitting a golf ball or uh, sweeping the floor or sitting at your desk hour after hour or lifting or twisting or running or biking or swimming or vacuuming or painting, the necessary motions run through your core. They either origin originate with your core muscles or they, they move through it. Your balance, your stability, your posture, uh, all come from your core muscles. When you're on a, a bumpy car ride or a boat ride and you have the ability to stay upright, that's because you have your, your core muscles are engaged and, and active. When you, when you bend over to put your shoes on or tie them to get back up, you use your core muscles. No, no matter where the motion starts, it, it either ripples upward or downward through your core. So if you have a weak or inflexible core, uh, you may have difficulty moving other parts of your body. If you have a weak or inflexible core, uh, some of your power is, is taken away. And so if you, if you exercise your core muscles, you'll find that you have strength to do a whole lot of other activities. What you do, you can do better if you have a strong core. Um, now, I've had, I've had quite a few chats with uh, personal trainers, and, and I like just learning about what they do. And I think every trainer that I have talked to has pointed to the fact that people don't like working out their core. They struggle with getting people to be consistent about core exercises more than, than anything else. And, you know, I spend a fair amount of time at the gym, and, and so I have anecdotal evidence that this is true, besides myself. Um, you, you go to the gym, and there's lots of people on treadmills. Treadmills are full quite a bit. Stationary bikes, people are on those quite a bit. Um, there's lots of guys over in the free weight part of the gym, and, and they seem to be bent on, you know, building the pecs and the, the biceps and the, their upper body, and no, my, never mind the fact that they have little chicken legs, and, you know, they're only focused on one thing. <clears throat> Treadmills are full, bikes are full, free weight room is full, but then there's some really lonely pieces of equipment in the gym, and they all exercise your core. You, you can just walk right on to any of those machines. There's no wait time. 
Of course, though, there are the, the few, the diligent, the proud, who just, that seems like that's all they do is work out their core. I mean, they are beasts. They just go after it, and they're diligent, and they're persistent. Those people make me sick. <laughs> but they recognize that having a strong core generally increases their balance. They recognize that a strong core increases their stability and strength. They have, uh, they have the ability to stand up and move and carry weight sometimes better than other people who don't have a strong core. And as I was thinking about all of that this week, I thought that was a really good parallel to how we look at our spiritual life. That there are some core things as part of what we do as followers of Jesus uh, that are very similar to exercising our core muscles. See, you have to exercise your spiritual core you need to have a strong center to be able to stand up under the pressures of this world. You know, when your coworkers approach you and they want you to participate in something that compromises your beliefs and your morals, if you don't have a strong core, you're, you're more likely to, to give in and follow along. When you're sitting at home alone in a darkened room surfing the internet and uh, an ad pops up for pornography or, or another website that maybe you shouldn't be visiting, if you don't have strong core muscles, you're more likely to click on it. If, if you don't have a strong core when, when there's a flirtatious, flirtatious advance from a coworker. If you have a strong core, you're, you're more, likely to, more likely to resist. If, if you're weak and inflexible, you may find yourself taking steps in a direction that you never intended. When your boss comes in with a pink piece of paper and says, I'm sorry, but with company cutbacks, you don't have a job anymore. A strong core helps you give that back to God and get through. A weakened core may plunge you into depression, spinning your wheels, not knowing exactly what to do. When the pressures of the world come in, having a strong core helps you stand up under that. I mean, look at what Luke records Peter saying in, in verse 40. He says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This, this world is morally bankrupt. It's bent on pursuing selfish desires. See, the world has turned its back on God. The world has turned its back on what God wants for humans. The world has turned its back on how God had intended for humans to interact with one another. The, the world, in a nutshell, is headed for disaster. It's headed for a cliff that it's going to plunge over, or a waterfall, whatever metaphor you want to use. The world is, is headed for that downfall. And Peter says that all those who call on the name of Jesus can be saved from going down with the world. 
So whether Jesus is the, the, the life vest or the little orange ring that you can throw out, or, or whether Jesus stands in the middle of, of that river and just blocks you from going over the edge, Jesus is the way to be rescued from that. That's what Peter says. And, and, and as, as we continue on in this narrative, uh, Peter's sermon sparked something in these people in Jerusalem. And, and they recognized, maybe for the first time, that, wow, this Jesus who we just crucified was indeed the Messiah. They recognized that the state of affairs in their society, that, that as, a, as a whole, they were plunging towards this cliff, and Peter's words sparked in them the, the need to repent. And maybe, you know what, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we need to admit that. It says they were cut to the heart. And, and as we continue on, Luke says that there were 3,000 people that believed Peter's message that day and put their faith in Christ. They, they were baptized. They, they made a choice to go a different direction. They made a choice to make a public proclamation of this newfound faith. I, you know, I've, I've preached a sermon or two. I've never had 3,000 people respond. That's pretty awesome when you think about it. But what does that have to do with... Uh, core muscles of the faith. See, Luke makes a connection between the acceptance of this message and the new lifestyle that these people adopted. You'll probably notice in, in your Bible, at least in all of, the, all of the printed copies that I had, I looked through every one of them, and in every one of them, there is a distinct break between verse 41 and 42. It's like it's two separate sections and there's a heading over verse 42 that says something like the fellowship of believers. But in the Greek text, there's no break. Uh, verse 41 and 42 flow together and it reads something more like this. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It keeps going. They made the confession of faith. They repented. They made a choice to go a different direction. They got baptized. It didn't end there. They devoted themselves immediately. See, Luke is saying that to save yourself from the corrupt generation, it takes what's in verse 37. It takes that recognition of Jesus as God's Messiah. It, it takes what's in uh, verse 38, being baptized, initiated into this community. So we have we've got recognition of Jesus, which we could call a confession or repentance. Those are other words that, that we often use the public profession of, of that faith, and, and, it takes, as the community of believers, that means all of us, all of them, all 3,000 plus the 120 or so that had existed, it took all of them to be devoted to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
and prayer, which when put into, the mo- when put into motion, there, there's another section uh, the, at the very tail end of verse 47, 47b, it says, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. All of that put together was a public witness to other people. And, and so as we, as we think about this, well, what, is, what does the teaching mean? When we say teaching, what, what, what is that? If we're talking about these as core things that, that the body of Christ does, what is it? Teaching is a way of saying that they were a learning church. That they, they, uh, it meant that they made every effort not to deviate from the doctrines that the apostles handed down to them from Jesus. That they persevered in the practice of learning and studying together. They were eager students. They, they were not just book-learning kind of folk, but they also learned how to put it into practice. They learned how to love one another. They, they learned how to serve one another. They learned how to share their faith with, with other people. That's teaching. They were also fellowshipping. Um, we use the word koinonia on occasion to talk about fellowship, hospitality, how we care for one another. Uh, they, they held all things in common. We read a little bit further in, in that passage. It, it meant they took care of one another's needs when they knew what they were. They spent time together. They had fun together. Um, it was a loving and a sharing church is a way of talking about fellowship. Th- they welcomed new people in with open arms. 3,000 were saved one day, but the Lord kept adding to their number every day. And every day, they opened their arms wider and wider. It didn't matter how many people came, they were welcome. It didn't turn inwardly focused and only caring for who was in. It was constantly outwardly focused, welcoming in people who had not yet made the choice for Jesus yet. The breaking of bread and, and prayer. And we're not just talking about the Lord's Supper, which, which was the, the kind of the central part of their worship together. Uh, if you notice, the text says that they continued going to the temple for the regular mass, for the regular service in, in the Jewish faith. They, they kept doing that, but they also started gathering in smaller groups of people outside of their worship time. And breaking bread also is a way of saying they ate together. They shared salt with one another is a metaphor from that time. Uh, I had a pastor friend who he, he had just started a, a new ministry, uh, started a new ministry at a church, and, and there was a Greek family that was part of, part of that congregation, and he was, the pastor was invited over to their house for dinner, and, and after the meal, uh, the patriarch of the family, he said, now you can be my pastor. You've put your feet under my table. That's what breaking bread together means. We share salt with one another, we put our feet under each other's tables, and we start to go through this thing we call life together. There is a place for the public worship gathering in the text, but they also moved out and beyond because they knew that that once-a-week time wasn't enough for them. And in the text here, it says they did that every day. 
Now, that's a huge stretch for some of them. We read that, and we say, wow, that, ideally, that, that sounds pretty neat. I don't know if I could get to that point personally, but, but that's a really cool story. And we imagine that everybody that we're talking about here is from the same social status. They weren't. Some were slaves. Some were middle class. Some were upper class, educated folk. And everybody who came to Christ was put on equal footing. And so in the eyes of all of the people that were in this group, it made perfect sense. I could associate with anybody who came in. But as they were learning how that was okay, they also probably had in the back of their mind, what are my friends thinking? Am I going to lose social ranking because I'm inviting slaves over to my house for dinner and treating them as equals. See, we read this, and it's not quite as cut and dry and, and easy as it sounds. For some, this was a huge stress. For some of them, this was really risky social business that we're talking about. But Luke says that they devoted themselves to these things. They put forth a lot of effort. It, it was hard work. And it remains hard work to continue these practices. It is hard, intentional work. The, the, the word for devoted that Luke uses here is the Greek word proskartoreo. And proskartoreo means um, to adhere to something firmly, to be steadfastly attentive, uh, to continue something all the time, to, to be relentless is a way of saying that, uh, to persevere and not grow faint, to not let it fall by the wayside, to not let it die. L Luke reports that these Christians were obstinate about it. They were persistent. They, they, they were relentless about locking arms with one another and following Jesus' instructions. And they, were, they would do this in spite of all the potential danger and despite all of the hard work and personal inconvenience that it may have brought on them, their, their allegiance to the church, it wasn't a convenience thing for them. It was a commitment. It, it was a matter of, of ultimate concern in their life. It was their priority, if you will. They persisted in these things even when more alluring things came along sunny days, sports games, whatever it is, they, they were persistent on meeting together for worship and meeting together in small groups. That they, they sought God regularly. And it appears to me that, that they didn't really care how much time it took. It appears to me in the text that they still expected that God would do miraculous things in their midst that God would continue to pour out His Holy Spirit and there would be signs and wonders done among them and in their community. See, they met the needs of those who were inside the church, but they also met the needs of people outside the walls of the church, even at personal cost to themselves. This passage, is, it's not just a nice account. It's, it's not just a, a nostalgic look back at a a bunch of people who first recognized the saving grace of Jesus. 
It's not just a, you know, a picturesque look at how these believers came together and, and had everything in common with one another. Um, this offer spills down to us today. Uh, verse 39, the promise is for you, the promise is for your children, the promise is for all of those who are far off. It's for all whom the Lord our God will call. At that moment in time, that's a pretty far-reaching statement. That statement is one that doesn't ever end. That, that's a statement that reaches every single human being who has existed from this time. It reaches us. It's for you. It's for me. It's for your grandma. It's for your coworker. It's for the neighbor that you don't get along with. It's for the people who pick on your kids. Everybody. See, this passage right here, as I think about what it means to be a church. Last October, I think it was October, um, I did a worship series on the, the five pillars, the, the five things that, that make the foundational uh, mission of, of, of our church. And, and those were, they, they come almost directly from this passage, uh, teaching and discipleship, learning together, uh, helping each other along in studying and, and knowing our scripture, how to serve, how to, how to love, all of those things. Uh, it's fellowship or hospitality. It's, it's being generous givers of time and energy and money. It's breaking bread and praying together, or we call it worship. Uh, we want to be avid worshipers of, of God in both public settings and in private. I mean that we worship with our life. Uh, we want to be a serving people, uh, sharing the resources that we have been given. Uh, we want to be spirit-gifted servants who look for need and we meet needs in our fellowship, but also in, in our community and beyond. And, and we want to be a witnessing church. We, we want to be credible witnesses for Jesus to nameable people in our lives. All, all of these things are essential to what we do. And if any one of them is missing, it, it's kind of, it destabilizes our faith. Our, our core muscles are weakened if we are not working on all of these things. If we leave any of these out, then we're at risk of stumbling. We're at risk of, uh, of growing weary. We're, we're at risk of, of drifting away. The world's influence is powerful. We need all of these things to help us keep a solid footing in Christ. If you go without, if we go without worship, what happens is, is we fail to celebrate God's faithfulness in a, in a public setting. It's like we fail to raise the flag for Jesus. We fail to publicly proclaim Jesus' death and his resurrection as the center of of our existence. If we neglect worship, we, we fail to pray together, and we fail to thank God for what He has done, and, and when prayer is missing, that connection with God is missing. If we fail to uh, go, or if we, if we go without teaching, it, it's easy for us to, to revert 
to a worldview that's shaped by the dominant culture. If you listen to the voices in our culture telling, that you can find, telling you that you can find your own truth and that you can behave and that you can act exactly how you want, that if it's right for you, then it must be okay. If, if that's the dominant influence, if, if that's what you're listening to out in the world, if, if you listen to the world and they say, well, you know, sin, that's just a really strong word. You know, there's not really anything such as sin. If, you know, as long as you have a good heart and you do good things, then, then you're going to be okay. If, if these are the things, if you don't have an absolute truth that you rest on found in Scripture and in Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, then we're going to find ourselves floundering. The human mind is made that, that it will pay attention to uh, the loudest thing going on, the most persuasive, the most pervasive thing. That what we subject ourselves to, what, what goes in comes out, that's quite literal. If we go without the teaching, it, it's really easy for us to drift away and forget the truth that's been given to us in Scripture. If we ignore common life together, if you live your life with minimal interaction with other believers, with, with the body of Christ, if, if you don't prioritize being part of corporate worship times, if you push back on joining small groups or, or other opportunities to be in close relationship with fellow Christians, it's really easy to become detached and isolated in your faith. And when you become detached and isolated, again, you start to drift. When you are detached, trying to go it alone, that, that, that's a sign of a of weak core. Your, your flexibility and your strength is reduced, and it's hard to stand up under the pressure. Our, our family spent some time down at Redwood National Park a couple years ago now. And I was fascinated to, to study a little bit about those giant trees, tallest trees in the world. And you would think the tallest trees in the world would have really deep tap roots that go way down deep so that when the winds come and the storms come, that 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 tree is anchored really deep so that it won't tip over. It's not true. The, the giant redwoods, the tallest trees in the world, ha have root systems that only go down about 10 or 12 feet. But they spread out to about 60 to 80 feet wide. And as, as the root systems grow outward, they interlock with the other redwood trees that are in the vicinity. And their roots are all interlocked together. So when the winds blow and the storms hit and the trees start to sway, their strength isn't necessarily found in their own ability to stand up. Their strength is found in the community of trees in that grove. They're anchored at their core. Their root systems are interlocked. And sometimes even up in the canopies, when the winds blow, they, they lean on each other prevent them from tipping over. I, I think that when we 
when we worship together, when we pray together, when we eat together, when we play together, when we cry together, when we study God's Word together, when we serve together. That's a process by which we grow our roots together and they interlock, just like these big, tall redwood trees. There's strength that is found when we participate in community with one another. If I could just go on a little tangent for a second. I want to give you an example of, of what I'm talking about. Drift. There's, over even the last several decades, 20, 30 years, there's really been an explosion of kids' activities. Sports, uh, music, clubs, just the opportunities for our kids. The number of them has just exploded. And, and all of these things used to be fun add-on activities. Um, they, they were fun, and they didn't interfere with participating in the local life of a church. I remember when I was growing up, uh, Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings were reserved for church times. And so if you were in sports or in a club of some sort, you knew that you never met on Wednesday night and you never met on Sunday morning because those that gave you the time where you could participate in the life of, of your church. But there's been a huge shift in our culture. And our culture is now persuading us to believe that if we don't sacrifice seemingly everything to let our kids participate in, in these extracurricular kinds of activities, that, that we are somehow holding them back uh, from current pleasure and popularity uh, but we are also holding them back from potential future success. See, we so we we buy we start to buy into that, and, and we allow our priorities to shift and and change a little bit. Sports schedules and and practices and and recitals and all sorts of things uh, they're all wonderful opportunities. But gradually over time, they they've started to shift our priorities. See, gathering for worship, participating in small groups, reading your Bible, even personal prayer time, and just being in silence before God is sacrificed. It's, it's pushed to the margin. And I know it's a fine line here. Those, some of these things for kids are wonderful programs, and they need to be socialized and part of those, and it gives them an outlet for lots of different things. But what I've seen over the last couple decades is that the importance of those things has gone through the roof, and, and, and we have started allowing ourselves to rearrange our priorities so that our kids can participate in these things because the world says they're so important. And we minimize the importance of the things that our Bible tells us that maybe should be at the core of, of our existence. And, and so we say things like, well, it's only for a season. It's only for a time. My kids will only be, you know, 7 to 14 years old for a period of time, and, and then we'll revert back to the priorities that we once had. And I just got to tell you, if you begin to practice that now, you'll find something else when your kids are graduated and have moved on. There will be something else that comes up that replaces that. You've already 
pave the way to make it easy to say yes to putting your quiet time, your prayer time, your small group time, your worship time on hold. See, what, what's, what, what's really more important? Soccer practice, piano lessons, or helping teach your kids about prioritizing God in their life. What lessons do you really want to teach your kids and your grandkids? That, that it's okay to let the world dictate your priorities and your schedules? Or that once in a while, we have to lay aside, that we have to sacrifice some things in our life so that we can maintain our walk with Jesus? See, some things... We read this as the absolute truth. Some of these things are difficult to wrestle with because the, the culture is so persuasive and so pervasive and overpowering and oppressing that it, it's easy to succumb to that. And it's hard work. Proscartereo, they were diligent. They were obstinate. They were persistent. They persevered through making some of these decisions. Sometimes that personal cost. See, Luke has given us a picture of what our core includes. Teaching, fellowship, worship, serving, witnessing. The, the author of Hebrews would, would second everything that Luke said. In, in Hebrews 10, uh, 23, 25-ish, the author of Hebrews says that, that since we are since we have been granted salvation in Christ, that we should uh, spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. Those of us who grew up in Christian families or who have been in church for a long, long time may sometimes think that the discussion that we're having this morning is, well, ordinary, humdrum. I've, I've, I've heard that one before, Pastor. But, but to those who have been beaten down by the world, to, to those who have never felt the love of a family, to those who, who haven't been part of a community of people centered around a common belief, to, to those who are alone and, and have nobody to eat with, to those who are isolated and marginalized, to these people, the idea of joining a group of people like this uh, is life-changing. It's, it's rather exciting. New things to learn. Fellowship, friendship, prayer, people who care about me. It's powerful stuff. This is the kingdom at work. It opens up new horizons for people who have never experienced some of that. It's a radical idea, I know. Luke says 3,000 people on that day bought into it. That's pretty exciting if you ask me. I'd really like to experience that. But as I read this text, it's out of, it's out of this belief, it's, it's out of this instruction that, that we launched our core group ministry. We want to be intentional about helping 
us collectively together work on our core. If you have your core guide, if you don't have one, you can pick one up on the way out. But on the back of the core guide, all summer long, I've, I've had the values that, that we share. Together, we want to instill three values into our lives. Holiness, leading a Christ-like life. Community, finding a place to be relationally connected. Service, reaching out with Christ's love to serve others. We believe core groups are a catalyst in helping us move forward in Christ-likeness. We believe core groups uh, help us grow closer together in relationship with one another. And they help us move out to our community to serve in the name of Jesus. We don't take this stuff lightly. It's not just a new ministry opportunity. It's who we are becoming together as a church. I don't want you to see it as just something to add on to your already busy schedule. I really believe that participating in life with other believers is a vital part of us growing together in faith. In core groups, you know, you're able to build relationships that last with people, to explore issues that are relevant, to take what we talk about on Sunday mornings and apply it in your own life. Wherever you are in the continuum of faith, maybe you've been a, maybe you've been a believer for 50 years, 25 years. Maybe you're not yet a believer or don't know or only just a few years. Don't think that you have to have years of experience and lots of knowledge about the Bible to participate in a core group. Everybody is welcome to get in on this because it's a learning expedition for all of us. We grow together. We learn together. I know some of you push back. You don't want to get past the surface level in relationships. Some of you are resistant and maybe you're afraid or, or apprehensive about opening yourself up to other people. Maybe you're just convinced that, you know, I don't, I don't need that. I can, I can do without this part and I'll be just fine. I'm strong enough. You have a choice. You have a choice. But, but I want to be really clear about something. What we're talking about here this morning isn't an optional part of being a Christian. It's who we are called to be. It's who we are commanded to be. And if you put any stock in the pages of Scripture and you believe that this is the absolute truth for your life, then I would challenge you to rethink your thinking if you don't think that you need to be part of a smaller group of people than, than what we have in the room right now. Physically speaking, if we don't train our core muscles, we risk uh, bad posture. We risk back pain. We uh, may find that some of the routines and activities that we do are just a challenge to us. If we have a weak core, if our core is inflexible, then 
some of the regular routines of life just become more difficult. We don't have the strength that we want. I, I really believe that's true for our spiritual life as well. Uh, if you ask me, I, I work out my core, but I don't like working out my core. It takes a long time. It takes hard work. It hurts. The next day, DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, oh, it's brutal. I'm not a big fan of the core exercise. Spiritual exercise can be every bit as challenging. But I kind of have this motto for myself. If it doesn't hurt, if it doesn't stretch me, and if it doesn't inconvenience me, it's probably not doing me any good. It's probably not doing me any good. People of God said, Amen.